Download, a podcast from Relay FM, recorded Thursday, July 27th, 2017. This is episode 14, Secret Millennial. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm Jason Snell, your host, and this week I'm joined by two wonderful guests, staff writer at The Hollywood Reporter, Natalie Jari. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here so much. Uh, and Lisa Schmeiser is back, editor-in-chief of the Super Site for Windows for another return appearance. It's been a month. I figured that was fine. We can have you back. Hi. Hi, it's a pleasure to return. Okay, so let's get down to it. The most interesting stories of the week is chosen by myself and Download Podcast producer, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. So since Natalie is here and uh, she covers uh, digital media for The Hollywood Reporter, and since this is the start of the Television Critics Association Summer Press Tour, so you'll be seeing lots of headlines about what TV executives and producers and writers and actors have told the TV critics over the next... It goes on for like eight months. It's a very, very long event uh, <laughs> that, that my, uh, my podcast partner for a different podcast, Tim Goodman, refers to as the Death March with Cocktails. Anyway, I thought we would tilt a little bit toward digital media this time, which... Uh, uh, brings me to topic number one, which is Netflix. It's kind of a monster. It is uh, going to release. I, I saw stories this week about how it's planning on releasing 40 feature films this calendar year. Um, these go directly to its service, which often will make uh, people in the movie theaters business very angry because it means they don't go into theaters or they they uh, are, are not exclusively in theaters. Um, Amazon, its competitor, not taking that uh, approach. It finances films like Manchester by the Sea they screen in theaters and then it comes exclusively to Amazon. Uh, There's also a story that I read in the Atlantic recently mm-hmm. that was about Christopher Nolan criticizing uh, Netflix's approach because it leaves out the big screen experience that he values, which is why he shoots movies in 70 millimeter and IMAX and things like that. Like he did with his most recent movie uh, Dunkirk that's in theaters now. So uh, I, I got a lot of questions about Netflix, but I, I, I thought maybe we would start there. Um, you know, Natalie, am I wrong to say Netflix is kind of a monster? They're spending billions, like, what, I forget what the number is, $5 billion, $6 billion in content a year now? I believe it's 6 or $7 billion this year is what they've said, and that's on all content. So, you know, originals and licensed programming, everything. And they've, they just passed 100 million subscribers worldwide, which is crazy. It makes them by far the biggest in the subscription video space now. So, monster, for sure, in a way. No, I'm not pejorative. We love monsters, right? I, I saw Okja, mm-hmm. which is a, a speaking of which, a feature film released on Netflix uh, involving a, a kind of a giant pig that is not a mon- <laughs> is a monster, but is also very nice. So you know, so what 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 do you make of the the uh, Netflix film thing? We think about Netflix and TV a lot, but this idea of kind of uh, bypassing traditional um, film release and just uh, laying down the money to buy forty movies, and I mean, it feels like we're headed into a world where Netflix is essentially going to have a movie of the week, a, a full on feature film release every single week, uh, because they're very close already at forty. 
And I don't know if they've ever actually said that that's their goal, but I have to imagine it is because, you know, when they were first getting into the TV business, that's kind of what they said is that, you know, the goal was to eventually get to a place where they had one TV show a week, uh, you know, whether it was a kid's show or a drama, you know, something new every week. And it, they're, they're getting close to that in TV and, and now they're starting to do it for film too. It's, um, you know, it, it's just in, incredible how much they're producing. Lisa, do you, um, are you a Netflix? Are you one of the hundred million? <laughs> so I, I am a Netflix subscriber and I'm reading this Washington Post article and what's not clear in the article is whether these 40 films are going to all be streaming internationally or if there will be rights restrictions on any of them. Um, they should all be international. Netflix controls the distribution rights, yes? Yes. That's, you know, when they first started with TV, they didn't mm-hmm. in all yeah. cases, but mm-hmm. that's been the what they've been working towards. So, yeah. Yeah, because the thing I keep thinking, I read some, I, I saw um, something recently uh, that was talking about movies and cinema and saying, yeah, you know, Americans like to roll their eyes at a lot of unnecessary sequels, like that Transformers join the round table or, or whatever that monstrosity was. <laughs> And then they point out it made a lot of money in countries that are not America. So um, the th- question I have, which, of course, one story can't answer because the story was not written to answer that question, is how this kind of streaming cinema model, um, how well it's going to scale worldwide. You know... It's a, it's a really interesting question. I have a lot of questions about how Netflix scales a movie business at all. Because if you think about, you know, TV, there's multiple episodes, you know, even the most devoted binge watchers probably not going to sit down and, you know, watch all of, you know, Sense eight in one sitting, um, oh and so you know, it, it, co- it forces you to come back over multiple days. There's new seasons that come out every year. You, mm-hmm. you drop a movie, people watch a movie in a two hour sitting, and I don't know many people who immediately are going to go back and rewatch it again a couple days later. Uh, so it's it's an interesting thing that they're trying to do with films. But but you're totally right that that the international component. I mean, that's where all their growth is going to come from. Uh, that's really what Netflix is focusing on now. You make a good point about the um, you, you watch a movie and either it's one or done or perhaps it's a social experience later where either it's so bad that you get together and start heckling it and it, and it becomes like Showgirls 2018 <laughs> or um, <laughs> you're just like no you have to see this seriously it's it's five minutes um, I, I also remember reading and there have been some filmmakers who have taken to Twitter and said yeah the thing about the Hollywood business model is either you can do shoestring indies at this point or you can do blockbusters but there's no room for the kind of mid-market pictures that you used to have in the 1980s um, you know I'm thinking like Three Men and a Baby for example would actually be considered kind of a mid-market picture because when it came out there was like there were none of those guys were huge Marquee stars and the the film itself is pretty lightweight but you know it was appealing and people went to see it and play on cable forever so I kind of get the sense that maybe Netflix is broadening that is, is is picking up that opportunity that that hasn't been there in the studio system um of course I say this without having actually seen any of the movies or the slate but it seems like in terms of being a content producer maybe that's where you can go well, like the Adam Sandler movies would seem to fit into that uh that yeah. idea right that those are maybe not maybe that was the best deal Adam Sandler could make is because he's not going to make a block well he tried to make a, that blockbuster where the video games come alive let's not talk about that um, oh man <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but Oak, so Oakja is an interesting example because um uh 
this is a basically it's it's half in Korean and half in English, and um, so it's kind of this interesting combination. But I I definitely felt as I was watching it like this is a, sort of a smart move on Netflix's pl- part because they are uh, that that is a movie that should play quite well in at least two of their big markets, South Korea and the United States and, and other English language countries as well. Um, although the thing that like I, I saw it on a tile, Okja on a tile on my Netflix for like several weeks. And I was like, I don't even know what this is. And that comes to mind and something, uh, Natalie, when you talk about the sustainability of this, uh, it's, it's not only the time thing, which I think is true that this is a single shot and then you're done, but marketing is a big part of movies. And I, I I feel weird saying that because like, no, it's the art that's important, but like you do need to be aware of a movie and what it is and why you might want to watch it and that it came out. And these Netflix films sometimes, uh, and, and, and Netflix shows are like this too, to a certain extent. It's like, you can just not know they exist. There are so many of them and you don't know what they are. And just a little tile on your Netflix interface is not really enough to sell i mean every now and then i'll click on it to say what the heck is this thing but i don't know i don't know what the reviews are did it get reviewed i know that um that's a that's a challenge like do you review a netflix movie release as a feature release you do uh and, and okja is actually really interesting because that one uh was a can film so netflix took it to can along with another project that hasn't been released yet and you know so i think they were looking not just for you know uh, an audience in south korea but also for the prestige that comes with you know being part of the competition in can and and there were a number of french distributors who who got really angry that netflix was showing that at can and was part of the competition because they knew that that film was not going to actually be in theaters in France. And so this gets back to kind of, uh, you know, what this Washington Post article was, was all about, which is, you know, kind of the, the frustrations that people have between, you know, or that the, the theaters have with Netflix right now and kind of the weird place that they're sitting at in the movie space. But, but, you know, you have to think about, you know, the movie isn't just there to be marketed and, and get a lot of, um, you know, new subscribers to Netflix, they might also be doing it for a claim for prestige. There are, there are other considerations mm-hmm. there, too. Didn't this lead to a discussion about changing the rules of the Cannes Film Festival so that you have yeah. to, that the, the film doesn't just have to screen in the festival, but it has to have a theatrical release planned or it has to be released theatrical in France or something like that? That's very specifically like, we're not going to let Netflix compete in our film festival if they don't treat their films like films and put them in theaters. Exactly. And so next year, Netflix's films won't be eligible unless they put them into theaters in France. Oh, wow. Yeah. It, it seems like that that part of it is part of a larger conversation that movie theater chains and movie theater distributors are, are having or not having with their audience, which is that what are you selling? Because if you're selling, ac- because if, if you're selling access to a specific piece of entertainment, consumers are ready and willing to wait you out until it comes out digitally. Because Unless it's a really great experience, why are you paying to go to the movies at this point? And um, the only thing I can think of is sometimes you have a movie that turns into a bigger social experience. Um, you know, the Star Wars movies come to mind because you've got a, you've already got a built-in base, so there's some momentum there. And you know, I've gone to Star Wars movies on opening night, and people come with their lightsabers and they cheer in the previews, and the energy is great. And you go on those nights precisely for the social experience. 
I don't know how that scales to, I guess the question I have is, I don't know how that scales to Netflix or what kind of social momentum Netflix's cinema offerings are going to have or get, or how they're going to build audience and word of mouth over time. Because Jason, you also talked about the discovery issue, which is they have so much content. Um, how do you find it? And how do you build word of mouth around it? And how do you how do you recruit more people to see it and say, oh, I've got to get Netflix. Um, this is clearly something I, I want or I need in my life. Yeah. And a lot of theaters are moving toward this idea of a much more experiential thing that, that you know, obviously it's 3D and it's and it's got huge screens and, you know, you can you can order food and drinks. And I mean, there are lots of different ways to do this. Um, I can get better food at home for cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Um, yeah. it was always, it has always been so, but you have to make it. So, um, I, I don't know. That's, that's the challenge. Like, uh, nobody, I think, really knows whether if you were given the option to go to a movie theater or watch a movie at home, what would happen? I, I think the fear is that movie theater, uh, owners feel like the only thing that's saving them is exclusivity. But that's so artificial that I can see why they would kick back at Netflix because if, if that, wall is breached what happens to theaters the reason that blockbusters are are so much of what gets made today is probably part of that right because those are movies that probably greatly benefit from being seen on a big screen because they're loud and and spectacular in that way but you know i watched okja and felt like that would have been a great film to see on a big screen because it was so beautiful and you know my tv is fine but it's not going to to show it off the way that maybe the filmmakers intended uh you know the, the interesting thing I think with Netflix is you have to remember like what, what is Netflix's ultimate goal here? It's getting subscribers. So they don't care about the theater owners. They don't care about the distributors in that way. They only care about if Okja or, you know, the new Will Smith movie bright is going to add another subscriber and, and keep them. And, you know, so that's, they're just not thinking about things the way that a Warner brothers or a Sony would be thinking about it. Um, you know, and I've, I've talked with executives, there about it. And I've asked them this question of, well, don't your filmmakers want theatrical? And, and at the end of the day, I think, you know, filmmakers want a couple things too. They want as many people to see their movie as possible. And so if they feel like theatrical is going to be limiting, uh, maybe because they are more of an indie film. And so it will only be in, in theaters in major cities like New York and LA and Chicago. They, maybe they decide Netflix is the way to go because more people have access to it for cheaper or they want the awards love. And so Netflix is willing to put a movie in theaters for a couple days at like an art house theater in LA in order to help them qualify for an Oscar. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think it's going to work for every creator, every filmmaker, certainly Christopher Nolan has come out and said that that's not what he wants. Uh, but for certain filmmakers, if they know they're not going to have a blockbuster, maybe Netflix is the way to go. I absolutely agree with Natalie that Netflix is like, no growth subscribers. This is where it's going. And, um, what I think will be interesting and what I would like to watch to see if they do is if they find a way to, to try and mimic or expand the social, comp- the social component and the, um, that cinemas used to have. Because again, mm-hmm. when we were all, I'm assuming we were all born roughly within a few years of each other, which is probably a big assumption, but I think, um, I think Natalie may be younger than all of us, but that's okay. I'm, I'm a, I'm a secret millennial over here. <laughs> okay. Steven's technically a millennial too, I think. So, uh, yeah. you know, that's true. It's just you and me and Gen X. <laughs> so, so did you guys not have the experience of having a friend who went to see a movie and then said, Oh, you have to come see this movie. And they'd go back and they'd see it a second time while you saw it the first time in the theaters with them. Cause, or, or there was a Friday night, there's nothing else to do. And you're like, what are you going to do? I don't know. Let's go to the movies. And oh, everybody, yeah. we definitely went to the movies, you know, that, 
that was, uh, and I still do. I mean, that might just be because I live in LA and you kind of have to, to stay up on, <laughs> yeah. on culture here. But, uh, but yeah, you know, but at the same time, I saw a movie a couple weeks ago that I keep telling all my friends, Oh, this will be a great one for you to wait and watch when it comes out on, exactly, on DVD yeah. or on Netflix. So I, I think it, it's so expensive now to go to a theater. You make those kinds of decisions, you know, Oh, this is one I can wait for. The only reason I subscribed to Netflix is I was talking to my brother one day and he made a reference or a joke about a TV series that he saw. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he's like, this series is you, you have to watch this. And he gave me a couple months subscription as a gift. And, um, after that time, I was like, well, this, this, this Netflix is great. I can watch what I want when I want. (laughs) And so long story short, I'm now paying a monthly subscription fee. And, I wonder if Netflix is actually going to make that part more frictionless, where someone's like, I just saw this great movie, you need to see it too. And either they they, they send some sort of behavioral prompt to somebody, or they can gift them a viewing or a membership. Because that's another way to grow your subscriber base is to make it social and make it sticky. That's interesting. Yeah. And you know, I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot about with with binge watching and TV is this idea that it's like hard for people to know what they can talk about because you never know what, what episode someone's going to be on of a Netflix show. So it's interesting to see like the social patterns of people talking about Netflix shows. You know, it's the first couple days. A lot of people are talking about, you know, the new master of none on Netflix, but after a couple days that really tails off pretty quickly because no one knows, you know, what they can and can't spoil and no, no one's on the same page. And, and then you'll kind of start to see, you know, again, a couple weeks later, maybe uh, another uptick because, oh, people are discovering it who maybe didn't watch it the first weekend. But it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, and how are people talking about movies too, when, you know, not everyone has to go watch Okja the weekend it comes out. You just kind of discover it after, you know, seeing it in Netflix for a few days and going, huh, maybe I should watch this. It's harder to know how people are going to communicate. And there's not going to be the same water cooler kind of conversation around a big movie. Although, you know what I'm thinking of? Um, cause you make a good point about the time lag in engagement or the time lag in people responding and reacting is I'm thinking of two separate incidents. And one is how Deadspin had to eventually ban Anchorman, um, quotes from their, from, from their comments because once Anchorman came out on like cable and DVD, people watched it over and over again. And it really picked up a lot of cultural momentum as as people started just tossing, I'm in a glass cage of emotion and all that stuff. And that was years after that movie came out. And the second thing I'm thinking of is um, I was having one of those really awkward playdates with somebody I didn't know very well. Um, I invite the family over. This is the first time the person was rather reserved. And um one of the kids was playing with something and I said, what is this? A a school for ants? And the other person just started quoting back Zoolander. And then we found out later that they had watched it like obsessively on a loop in grad school as, as, as background noise. Again, like a decade after the movie came out and what you're touching on now. And what I'm thinking about is that maybe what we're seeing is also a shift in the way people, that these things percolate across pop culture. So it's possible some movie gets released on Netflix now, sinks like a stone, but then somebody finds it a couple of years later, it, it resurfaces and breaks out again, if that makes sense. I think we're going to see a difference in how people engage with their movies, you know? And Netflix has, has, um, has stats, right? Netflix can see when things float up 
and that's why we have Fuller House. Uh, sorry, but that's why is that people were watching Full House. And my daughter, uh, who's 15, she and her friends all have Netflix. And that social thing does happen, Lisa, but it tends to happen in a, I'm watching this. Are you watching this? You should watch this. And if you've got, already bought the ticket, right, it makes you need to be on Netflix because then they just say, here's a movie and you can just watch it. You don't have to think about it. It doesn't cost anything. You just click a link and you're there. And that is absolutely happening with that generation. That That is the power of, of having it. And Netflix is, at least in my daughter's circle of friends, that is the common thread. We have Hulu and, you know, and, and we have uh, Amazon Prime, but not everybody has that. And everybody yeah. seems to have Netflix. I hear anecdotally from people who have, you know, teenage children or, you know, children in college and they'll talk, they'll come home and they'll say, you know, did you, do you remember that one specific episode of Friends where, you know, blah, blah, blah happened? Because it's all on Netflix now and they're watching yeah. every single episode in a row. Whereas it used to be, you know, had to wait until reruns came on if you missed an episode. And so, you know, I remember like I, you know, I watched Friends when it was on, but then I, I didn't watch it all and I didn't watch it sequentially. And, you know, so my, my knowledge of it as a show is kind of incomplete. Whereas now, you know, you can have a full complete knowledge of it and, and be able to, yeah, quote it and know exactly what episode, what thing happened. It's, it's a totally different way to watch than, than on broadcast when you just kind of had to wait for the reruns. That's my daughter in the office. Yeah. Yeah. That's my 13 year old nephew. Two summers ago, he watched the entire run of Friends twice on Netflix (laughs) over the course of the summer. Like he was just obsessed with, with it. And, um, on a slightly related note, it's been interesting watching how the Netflix model has created entire genres of content, like the BuzzFeed listicles, like 73 things you've never noticed about how awful Ross Geller is, um, which no, you wouldn't have noticed them because they were stretched out over a decade, not over the course of the three weeks you watched the show. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also been really interesting watching how the streaming model has disrupted the the TV criticism and recap industry. Oh, um, yeah. There's a, there's a uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. There's a great piece that Tim Goodman wrote at The Hollywood Reporter about how uh, the role of a critic is completely changing because of all of the things that we've been talking about. Because people, you don't know when people are watching or what they're watching. And they could just as easily be watching something from five years ago that's good and not something that just came out today and so what do you do and how do you review by episode or do you review the whole thing or do you wait till the show is over so that you can say it had a satisfying ending and it's like there's no real good answer other than to say that nobody really knows what what the right way to approach it is this goes back to this whole idea of you know discovery i mean uh, you find your critic you know that you trust them and and that they're going to help point you to the right the right shows for you. And, and how, how do you do that when there's just too many shows out there and, you know, it, it, it makes discovery you know, that much harder. You just, you can't, you can't watch it all. You can't, you know, you can't be a completist with everything anymore. I also wonder about audience engagement and, um, I'm coming at this from a really old school perspective, because again, I recap for television without pity on the side for years and years and years. And what was always, we had to moderate the forums too. And what was always really interesting about that was as the week ticked by between episodes, people would get to the point where they were reviewing the episode and watching it two or three times and analyzing it frame by frame and going back to previous recaps. And they were sinking a lot of time and energy into analyzing things and projecting outcomes. And it it was a level of emotional and intellectual investment I'm not sure you can replicate when you are binge watching. Um, 
you know, for example, like the, the most recent season of Kimmy Schmidt, I binge watched like over the course of two days. And then I've been kind of going back and trying to watch episode by episode to see what I've missed. But, you know, if you th- there's definitely a difference in how people watch when you have the opportunity to watch a whole bunch of episodes at once versus a time lag. Oh, yeah. And having a week to chew on something versus you know, just being able to read the or watch the whole thing. It's a level of investment that you build up. Um, and I think that sometimes people cl- clung to TV show fandom far longer or, or viewership far longer than they would have otherwise, because they had sunk so much time and effort and emotional energy into the show. And they were unwilling to walk away from that investment. It was the sunk cost fallacy yeah, of TV I was, watching. I was going to say, it's the sunk cost <laughs> fallacy applied to How I Met Your Mother. And that's all I'm going to say oh, about that for now. Yes! Uh, Let's yes. take let's my, my daughter has opinions about how your mother and it's hilarious because her opinions are over about a one week binge, whereas I had I had like eight years to form opinions about how that ended. And uh, it, it's a very interesting contrast. Uh, let's we're, we got more to talk about about this, but I want to take a quick break uh, for one of our sponsors. Uh, this episode of Download brought to you in part by FreshBooks. If you own a small business, you will know what a chore administrative work can be. It's a total grind. It's not why you got in the business you're in, but you have to do it more than five million small business owners felt exactly the same way you did until they discovered FreshBooks. It's simple cloud accounting software that transforms how small business owners handle their paperwork. FreshBooks is great for invoicing. Send, uh, Create and send an invoice. 30 seconds. It's done. No formulas, no formatting. Perfectly crafted invoices every time. Your clients can pay you directly online with a couple of clicks. I do that. I pay people via FreshBooks all the time. It's great. It means you often end up getting paid a lot faster because it's so easy to pay you for your invoice. There's a super handy deposit feature. You can invoice for a payment up front when you're starting a project. FreshBooks can even show you whether or not a client has looked at the invoice you've emailed. So you don't need to send that email saying, hey, did you see that? You know they saw it. This is just a fraction of what FreshBooks can do for you. You owe it to yourself to break free from the boring administrative work and do what you chose to do for your business. Let FreshBooks help you and your small business. You can get a 30-day free trial by going to freshbooks.com slash download FM. And please enter download in the how did you hear about us section so they know that we sent you. Thank you to FreshBooks for their support of download. Now, before we move on, because I want to broaden this to talk about uh, streaming services in general, but I had a one one more Netflix thing in particular that I wanted to follow up with with Natalie. I'm uh, especially I'm interested in your take on this. Netflix actually started canceling shows recently, um, yes. but they, they still renew like 93 percent of all shows, which like any network would be thrilled to re- renew half of their shows. Um, what do you what do you think about that? Is Netflix really changing its philosophy and getting a little more um, picky about uh, the content that they're funding? Um, I'm 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 obviously the ultimate goal is. Main, you know, grow and maintain your subscriber base. But I, I was interested if you had a read on like Sense Eight, the Get Down Girl Boss was the latest kind of wave of cancellations, and what Netflix might be up to there. Yeah, shameless plug. THR has a handy guide of all the Netflix cancellations that we'll be <laughs> updating. So uh, if anyone's curious, um, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I think this recent number of cancellations were pretty high profile. So Sense8 had some like devoted fans who were really sad to see it go. And the get down was obviously, um, you know, widely talked about as one of Netflix's most expensive shows. Uh, but, you know, Netflix canceled, um, oh gosh, I can't can't even remember the name of it, one of its really early shows. And Lilyhammer is no longer streaming new episodes. So it's not that they haven't done this before. It's just that they're now starting to do it with some of these kind of bigger, um, more high-profile shows. And, you know, what's interesting... 
I think it, it calls into question this whole idea of, of cancellation because, you know, Netflix will say, well, we didn't cancel it. It just ended its run or it's just, you know, it's, it's run its course. And of course, you know, it's a cancellation and we all know that, but it's true that these shows will continue to live on, on Netflix for years to come. They're not going away. Um, you know, and that's different. And that's something that streaming has, has made happen that when a show got canceled on ABC in the nineties, it was gone and you couldn't really find it unless it got put on DVD or, you know, there was, there were reruns. Now these shows can continue to be subscriber drivers for Netflix in a way, um, without them having to put the money into making new episodes. So I think it all comes down to kind of a cost benefit analysis. You know, they've decided that, you know, the get down was so expensive to make that it, it serves them more as, as a piece of library content now for them Mm -hmm. than something that they're going to continue to pump new money into. And now they can, you know, divert their attention to the next big budget thing that they want to spend money on that will hopefully drive more subscribers. Uh, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the the great thing about Netflix is that maybe a bunch of people will discover Sense8 in the next couple of years and Netflix can bring it back and, and do a reunion. The British TV model. <laughs> they did. They did ultimately decide that they're going to do a two-hour Sensate finale, and and um, my thought about that was exactly what you said about the catalog. Is Sensate? I feel like might be more valuable to Netflix as a as a product that has a, an ending mm-hmm. than as a product where you get to the end and go, "What the hell? There isn't any more of the story. What happened?" And so when they greenlit the um, the the wrap up movie, basically, I thought that I think that's kind of a brilliant move because now they. Can and say if you'd like to watch Sense Eight, here it is, and you can watch the whole thing, and it has an end. And I feel like that makes its long-term catalog value greater than if it trailed off and everybody's like, "I oh, don't even bother." They canceled it. it. You know, it doesn't have an ending. It's kind of a smart move, I think. As a consumer, I am much more likely to watch something knowing that it has a plan and an ending. Now, yeah. in the age of peak right. TV, yes. you know, I, I would much rather know that this show that I loved is given three seasons because that's the story they want to tell and they can tell it in a really compelling way for three seasons and then be done in a way that's satisfying. I stopped watching shows like Grey's Anatomy years ago because they just Mm -hmm. kept going and they never end and I don't have the time. And, you know, I would much rather watch a show where I know I'm going to feel... Um, a sense of completion and and it'll be satisfying to to watch a certain number of seasons and then move on to another story. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so let's broaden this a little bit. One of the things that happened uh, last week was Comic-Con in San Diego, and uh, one of the big panels was about Star Trek Discovery, which is a show that is on CBS All Access. It's going to premiere, the pilot is on CBS, but then the, the moment that it finishes airing on CBS, the first and second episodes will appear on All Access, and that's the CBS streaming service. In the rest of the world, you'll get it on Netflix, basically, but in the U.S. and Canada, it's on local providers in the U.S. It's CBS All Access. Uh, meanwhile, there was also a lot of uh, buzzing in the last week about Young Justice, which is a DC Comics animated series that's doing a third season that will only be on WB's new streaming service, which is available this fall. And the archives are going off Netflix and will only be available on that streaming service, too. Um, I also recently spent a couple of months with Hot and Cold running uh, Classic Doctor Who on BritBox, which is a new service that has come out. Lots. Everybody's getting their own streaming services. There's, you know... The you'll find it on Netflix or Amazon seems to be a little bit shaky. And I'm wondering what you all think about 
where this ends, is there going to be a limit to like how many services consumers are really going to be able to do? Are these serve? I mean, surely there's going to be a limit, and some of these streaming services are going to are not going to make it, right? Or is this just the future? Is everybody's going to have a streaming service, and there'll be forty of them? It's so funny. There are you know, there's a streaming service for Korean dramas. There's a streaming service for classic films. You know, there's a streaming service for Comic Con. Um, there's there's something for everyone out there these days. Um, it's hard to start a streaming service. So it's going to take a few years before we see whether any of these can really uh, maintain a devoted enough fan base to keep them going. Uh, some of the, the companies that I've talked to, it seems like their, their idea is that they're essentially creating these services for the inevitable bundling of streaming services. <laughs> you know, it's like we thought we were moving away from the cable mm. bundle, but no, it's coming back mm-hmm. in a new form. And and you're starting to see that Amazon does this now, where yeah. in addition to your Amazon Prime subscription, you can sign up for a number of different streaming services that are two, three bucks a month and kind of create your own cable bundle, so to speak. Um, there's something appealing there that, you know, if I'm someone who loves classic movies, then maybe I want to spend those $5 to get that service, but I don't need to spend for, you know, sports because that's not important to me. That's interesting and that's intriguing, but, but I do think that you start, it does start to add up and it starts to be expensive and and not any cheaper than just having cable. Um, and so as a result, we've seen a couple go away already. So, you know, NBC launched CISO last year as a a kind of a niche comedy platform. Uh, they've essentially kind of stopped really updating it. It seems it doesn't seem like it's going to go anywhere. And, and Vimeo, was supposed to be launching a subscription service that they recently announced they're not going to launch. So we might be starting to see these services scale back here a little bit. Lisa, how many services do you have and what, what was, what's your limit? Uh, so I have to caveat, we still have cable precisely because I am married to someone who loves both classic movies and sports. Mm. And mm-hmm. um, until TCM starts its own streaming service, I think... Um, I think we're tied. I'm, and I'm, and I'm dead serious. Um, TC, like, if you look at our DVR, like 80% of the content is movies that we've uh, recorded from TCM. But you're right. I think there's a limit to how many different subscription services people are willing to buy. Cause, um, and then there's also a question of how many can you reasonably watch? Right. Cause, cause one of the advantages, and, and I realize that subscription services may find a way to address this, but honestly, one of the advantages that our cable plus DVR system has right now is if we don't have time, we can go ahead, record a bunch of different movies and, um, you know, the international swim meet championships that were last week, plus like five episodes of whatever my daughter's into this week, and then watch it on our own schedule. And it's all in one place. And there is literally one interface we have to go through. And, if I have several different streaming services with several different um, types of shows on each of them, what is my experience as a viewer? How can I easily aggregate them and queue them up without having to switch between several different interfaces? Or um, yeah. and, and then there's the issue of, of downloading and portability. Um, I don't doubt that the future is in streaming. And there's a lot of really good and compelling reasons for it. But I think at some point, um, 
we are going to run up against the limits of human attention. I I am a cord cutter and I I do this juggle that you're talking about, uh, not looking forward to doing where I'm constantly trying to figure out where I can get my shows and and how and when. And and it it can be challenging sometimes. Uh, You know, Apple has has an app now uh, that's supposed to um, kind of take all of your different shows that you're watching across your different uh, streaming services on Apple TV and make them available in one place. Now, they don't have deals with every single streaming service yet to import that data, so it's not complete, but it's starting to get there. So I think you eventually you will see more solutions like that for helping people, you know, have all of their viewing in one spot. What I think is really interesting and compelling down the line is this opportunity to not be beholden to a, a kind of a, a cable um, contract. Uh, so, you know, I signed up for Showtime because I wanted to watch Twin Peaks. When I'm done with that, I might cancel because I, there might not be anything new there for me. Um, maybe they'll, they'll come up with something else that will keep me there. But, but there, I think it, it still needs to be simplified, but this opportunity to kind of manage all of your different subscriptions and kind of turn them on and off at, at whim as you want to watch something and as you've completed something and, and kind of, again, kind of make your own bundle, so to speak, is, is potentially compelling, but it, it requires a lot more work. You know, you have to be willing to manage it and you don't have to manage your cable subscription in the same way. The other thing I was thinking about was uh, one of the, and, and again, I say this as somebody who's about to actually launch into protracted negotiations with my cable company because my two-year fixed rate is expiring (laughs) in a few weeks. Um, So we're going to have to do the thing where I threaten to cancel and they kick me up the phone line and I talk to manager, blah, blah, blah. Um, There is a lot to be said for the the sheer fire hose of content and being able to just click through and discover things, discover things, discover things. I'm thinking back to my first apartment when I had cable and I could come home from work on a Friday night and click, 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 click. And um, I ended up finding a lot of really interesting stuff I would not have thought was up my alley until like I took a few minutes to watch it. And this goes back to the thing we all keep talking about, which is how do you discover new content? Um, if If you are dealing with a bunch of subscriber services, presumably something drew you in. But is there an element of serendipity? Or is there that you would have the same way you did when you were idly channel surfing? Um, Maybe it's a generational thing where because when I subscribed to a streaming services for really specific shows, or it was and and now I kind of click through tiles, or I'm like, Oh, let's see what kind of New Zealand comedies I can find. (laughs) But uh, and I do. Oh my gosh. Um, I've been looking for a lot of New Zealand TV. I really enjoy it. <laughs> but how are, how are digital natives, um, having a serendipitous experience or is it even possible or is it just, um, their behavior is more, more heavily pushed by algorithms on the back end than a random channel surfers was. I have to tell you, that is the thing I miss the most about not having cable is just being able to flip through the channels. I I was traveling last week for work and I was staying in a hotel that had cable, of course. And it was like, it was the biggest treat. I was like, oh my gosh, I can just flip through the channels and find whatever thing happens to be on that I feel like watching at this very moment. So, you know, it's, it's not that I don't want that. I guess the, um, you know, the benefits of, of not paying a hundred plus dollars a month for cable outweigh outweigh that desire for me. Netflix needs to provide an emulated version of that where they like use their algorithms to pick a bunch of things that, that are, are weird and quirky and that you might like, and then lets you just flip through them. And it's literally the content that's on Netflix. That would be great. <laughs> just like fake channel surfing on Netflix. Let's, let's do that. 
That would be Who's awesome. Who's new alg- algorithm? Uh, they have a new, whole new app on Apple TV. It's it's really nice looking. Um, they they're trying to simulate some of that. I mean, you don't quite come into something already playing, but but they organize the shows in a way that are supposed to, you know, be a little bit more serendipitous, so to speak, and kind of surface things that are, you know, so when they had a Bond documentary out a few months ago, you know, they had a whole, you know, area where you could go and find all the James Bond movies mm. and, and stuff like that. So people are trying it. I miss Hulu. I, I watched it a lot when um, it was still ad supported and free. And I found so many shows that way. Because when you're watching, they'd be like, Oh, you may also like this, or they'd have things at the bottom. And I ended up falling into a whole lot of different series I wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, I miss Hulu. <laughs> I, I actually pay for Hulu Plus and it's pretty it's pretty great. There's a lot of good stuff on there. They are still kind of dealing with the fact that they have this ad driven history that um there's shows that that have commercial breaks that even with Hulu Plus I see the break. And if you've watched that same show on Netflix, there's no breaks. It's just right. There's they're they're working on it. But there's a lot of good stuff there and with uh, their originals like Handmaid's Tale has really um uh, gotten them more visibility, which I think is good. Let's not leave leave out I mean Amazon is obviously I think Jeff Bezos as we're recording this has just officially become the richest man in the world Amazon Prime is a pretty huge service and it covers so much but the video side of it you know they are also bankrolling Oscar winning movies that they that they actually allow in theaters and they're they're uh, premiering lots of TV shows and I, I think you can't count them out because they've got that that horizontal integration of all of their other businesses in addition to having a service that's pretty good it may not be quite at Netflix's level but it's got a lot of good stuff of, of, of its own. Yeah, I mean, they're behind the big sick, which has been doing pretty well. Uh, in, it was in limited theatrical release, and I think it went wide a, a weekend or two ago. Um, lots of people enjoying that. And that's that's a prime example of what we were talking about earlier, a film that would have never been made now uh, by a traditional studio because it, you know, it's not a blockbuster and it's not an indie. It's kind of somewhere in between. Um, and, and people are really enjoying it. Um, the issue, I find with Amazon is that it's it's not as easy to find and watch their their video programming. You go to their website and it's still an e-commerce platform first and foremost. Um, and as an Apple TV user, as I've added myself earlier, you know, there, there's the Amazon Prime Video app is not yet available on Apple TV. It's coming, but it's not there yet. So it, it means I have to, I have to again, I have to have that intent. I have to know that I want to watch something on Amazon and go find it, as opposed to having something kind of just surfaced for me. Yeah, it's uh, discoverability still is a, a challenge there. Netflix seems to be doing a better job with it, but um, yeah, that's the downside of having everybody has Amazon Prime, so they've got that video service. Is it's not just a video service. And sometimes the interface is a little bit wonky. Um, I'll be interested to see how the Amazon Prime app looks on Apple TV because, or what will that what will that look like, and will that be a re, a rethink, or will it be skinned very much like the one that's on every other platform? Um, that could give us some ideas of where Amazon is thinking they're going with their interface. Let's take a break, and then we'll be back for one more topic. Um, this episode of Download brought to you by Mac Weldon, the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts 
shirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now, unless you're wearing Mack Weldon. My socks are Mack Weldon right now. They are so confident that what uh, what you're wearing right now is not as good as what they can make for you. There is a no questions asked return policy. If you don't like it, uh, your first pair of Mack Weldons, you can keep them and they'll refund you. No questions asked. You're going to be super comfortable in whatever you buy. They pair premium fabrics, meticulous attention to detail, and a simple shopping experience that lets Mack Weldon deliver a new level of daily comfort straight to your door. There are undershirts that sit, stay tucked, st- socks that stay up, waistbands that don't roll. Everything they make is made with premium cotton blended with natural fibers, and their website is super easy to use, built to get you in and out as quickly as possible. They won't waste your time. There's even a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor using science. Not only do Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, are good for working out, going to work, traveling, or just for everyday life. Love their socks. I love their underpants. I love their sweatpants. They're very nice. Listeners of this show can get 20% off at MacWeldon.com by using the code DOWNLOAD. 20% off at MacWeldon.com. Thank you so much to Mack Weldon for your support of Download and all of Relay FM. Uh, now it is a time on the show where I like to mention a story you may have missed. And this is something that actually was just happening while we were talking, which is just, a, you know, pour one out for the iPod because Apple has removed the iPod Nano and the iPod Shuffle from their price lists. They're gone. The iPod Touch remains running iOS, but this is, if there ever was one, the date of death of the original iPod. I, I know the classic iPod. Steven, the classic iPod already died. How you okay? You feeling okay about this? I'm... I'm pouring one out, you know. I've got a nice collection of iPods, and I'm just holding them tight, telling them that everything will be okay. I have to admit, I still use the iPod Nano for my runs most mornings. This mm-hmm. is um, this is a sad day for yeah. for my little device here. Yeah, the I, I always love the iPod Shuffle. I used it all the time when I was like mowing the lawn and stuff. It was it was so great because it was just so little that it just uh, cl- I could clip it to my shirt and go about my business. It was pretty great. It's also simple enough for my mom and all of her senior citizen lady posses. Yeah. Um, they they love it for their power walks because they don't have to launch a thousand apps and there's fewer choices is a better interface for them. This is a perfect transition because speaking of dead technology, I also wanted to mention, and this is, it's funny, we were talking about video, uh, web video and and, uh, and other stuff for this episode. Uh, so much of that, uh, at least originally, was brought to you by Adobe's Flash technology, which is going to be dead by 2020, uh, unsupported from then on out. Adobe announced that this week. Flash has been a vehicle for so much of the stuff that we watch on the web. Presumably, there will be a huge transition. I know that some sites are already transitioning. If you are on uh, a Mac and you load Netflix, it I doesn't. I think it's all HTML5 video at this point. Um, but there are definitely sites that still require Flash. I, I have Chrome. I watch video in Chrome a lot because that's got flash in it and I don't have it in my Safari. Um, You know, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to be crying for the death of flash, but I I think maybe what I wanted to ask you both is, does anybody as a consumer, does anybody really care about the technology that's behind this stuff? Do they notice or is it just uh, something that people who watch the tech industry uh, care about and decry? Like flash has a terrible name in tech circles because it's Mm -hmm. slow and buggy and dangerous in terms of its security oftentimes, but I'm not sure anybody else cares as long as their video plays. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You know, I will not miss 
getting that alert when I go to try to watch a video that I'm not updated Update on Flash your Flash and then I need to, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's just, you want to go watch a video, you just want to watch it. You just want it to work. You, so anything anyone can do to make it easier to just click a button and get what you want. No one wants to wait around anymore. There were days in the internet when, when you were willing to, you know, wait several seconds to, to download something no longer. No, and it's a legacy of what, what uh, it was a point where the platform owners and the browser makers didn't do video, couldn't do video, didn't want to do video, and the Flash plugin enabled it, and everybody was like, yay! But the trade-off there was that it like had to be updated separately, and it and it mm-hmm. and had all these issues, and now there are alternatives. I, mean, I think the reason that Adobe cited is now there are alternatives that are built into everything to do this stuff. You don't need to use Flash to do it. And it's old tech. It's, you know, it's decades-old technology that um, has lots of security issues and things like that. I think we're actually going to see those security issues issues rise after 2020 because just because the company says oh it's dead we're not supporting it doesn't mean that users are going to automatically like you know break free from the shackles of flash in their computer you have people who don't ever upgrade their tech yeah it wouldn't be great if they just killed it in 2020 like sorry flash is off now yeah <laughs> but that's no, not gonna exactly. happen it's gonna be like all the computers in the national health service in the uk that are running yeah. windows xp exactly yeah. um i think with people who cover tech some and 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 eagerly follow it, sometimes forget is that for a lot of users, they really don't get a thrill out of upgrading to the latest technology or the latest version of whatever. They're like, this is working. This is fine. Why, you know, why would I risk changing what's working for me? And so you are going to have like a built in audience that hasn't upgraded their computers or can't for whatever reason, either hardware or software. And if you've got this technology that's unsupported, that already has tons of security holes in it, or the potential for tons more, um, you're going to see a lot of bad actors turning their attention to that starting in 20, you know, starting in 2020. And it will be kind of interesting to see how the security landscape uh, reacts to to that. Because right now I was like, yay, Flash is going away. But I don't think they fully thought through user behavior here you know yeah and literally there will be some company out there that still requires it for like one tiny industry specific application that will will not have been updated or even available for use for like five years there will be somebody somewhere who has some mission critical piece of software that relies on flash and it will get broken into and this will somehow bring down a network i mean i can guarantee it's gonna happen (laughs) yeah and adobe what adobe's gonna say is look we gave you three years warning but at some point we're walking away from this pile of uh, pile of code and pile of security risks and we're not touching it anymore and it's your problem but you're right it will happen it's inevitable because we we have seen it with the windows xp stuff like some people are just they they don't want to they don't care they don't pay attention or they can't for some reason budgetary or bureaucratic they keep the old tech in place and they don't have a replacement and uh yeah i fully expect that all of these video streaming services right if they're not already there they will be there. Um, I, I was thinking about um, Major League Baseball, which uses a Flash player on desktops, and it's like, of well, they, they, does, they, yeah. they've already they've already gone off of it on mobile. It will not be. I mean, in many cases, this is an unstated thing here. In many cases, there's already a non-Flash version of this stuff. It just detects whether you're on desktop or mobile and serves you the non-Flash version if you're on mobile. So all they'll have to do is turn that on for everyone and the story is over right so yeah that'll Mm -hmm. that'll happen has somebody already written the think piece about how steve jobs is the one who killed flash by refusing to have it supported on the iphone like has that happened 
thousands of people i think have probably already already done that yeah because i I assume they're gonna dust it off and modify it for here but this is proof that he can see the future and lo the wizard of cupertino blah 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 well i mean yeah i mean it was so he wrote thoughts on flash in 2010 right but 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 i think the the uh, several people have pointed out the real moment where flash was clearly not going to make it was when adobe's efforts to get it running on android failed because that was they had been able to blame apple up to that point and then they proved apple right which was it just couldn't work on mobile platforms the they you know it was too complicated too much overhead mobile devices could not run it and at that point it, the writing was on the wall that this is going to go away because the, the percentage of the web that is viewed through a, a, a traditional computer interface is shrinking because mobile is growing so much. So it, it's it, it's it, the writing's been on the wall a long time. And this is Adobe's obviously their cost analysis of when it becomes not worth it for them to be the stewards of this platform anymore. And the answer is 2020. That's when. So uh, I'm not going to pour one out for Flash. I'm not going to do it. Uh, let me tell you about what is uh, what we can look out, out for in the week ahead. Their uh, quarterly results for various companies are coming and have been coming for the last week or so. They will continue through next week, including Apple's results next week. So we'll learn. Uh, we, we'll have lots to chew on in terms of what companies are doing what, what ads Facebook is uh, having success selling. I think that just happened. And uh, otherwise, it's summer. So uh, if you're taking a summer vacation, everybody uh, enjoy that. That's something you can personally look out for in the week ahead. Uh, but that brings us to the end of this edition of Download. Natalie, thank you so much for being on. Where can people find you and the stuff that you do? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm on Twitter at Nat Jarv, J-A-R-V. And uh, I write for The Hollywood Reporter. So you can find mm-hmm. all, my, all my stories at THR.com. And Lisa Schmeiser, where can people find the stuff that you do? Start with Twitter, L-S-C-H-M-E-I-S-E-R. <laughs> and just go from there. Just go from there. I link, I link things. It's fine. <laughs> Excellent. And thank you to my producer, Stephen Hackett. Stephen, cradle that iPod close to your chest. Uh, that's what I'm doing the rest of the day. Yeah, that's right. Just leave, leave it. Put Get a shirt with like a breast pocket and just slide an iPod in there yeah. and keep it by your heart. I could be like the guy from uh, Her. It'll be perfect. Yeah, there you go. And uh, until next week, I have been your host, Jason Snell. We will continue watching those headlines so you don't have to. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Bye.